Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We're joined by the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, who's uh, always welcome on this program. Mr. Giroux, good to have you back. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. So post-budget, now you told us last year that the federal government could afford to spend massively, as it did last year, just once. And yet here we are, looking at another $300 billion plus deficit for 2021. Are you concerned? Well, I'm not concerned yet because the amount of spending is was a one-off. There's been some extensions to COVID support measures, but these are temporary. But uh, what is concerning is that the level of flexibility that existed um, before the, the budget seems to have been exhausted almost entirely. So if the government was to introduce significant new permanent spending measures in the future, for example, if it wanted to increase transfers to provinces for healthcare, then it would lead the government on an unsustainable long-term path. That means the deficit, uh, or the debt rather, as a share of GDP would keep on increasing over time unless the government increased taxes. So um, any new spending that's significant from now on will probably have to be um, financed through tax increases in one way or another. Yeah, and we know the provinces would like or have asked the government for was it $29 billion in, uh, in, in health transfers, increased health transfers, and the provinces will continue to ask. So the money is just not going to be there. there have we re- are we reaching a finite uh, dollar amount then? Um, it's difficult to exactly determine where the breaking point is, but it's clear that provinces as a whole are not fiscally sustainable over the long term without significant corrective action. Mm-hmm. So... Provinces are asking for more money from the feds. If they don't do that, if they don't get more money or they don't increase taxes or reduce their own spending, then their debt-to-GDP ratio will go on increasing and increasing uh, to unsustainable levels. And the federal government does not have that much room after the budget that it has tabled without increasing taxes. So, as I said, any new meaningful permanent spending that gets introduced in, in the next budget or outside of a budget will probably require, at one point, tax increases or expenditure reductions in other areas. What's, the, uh, what's your economic forecast for this country? Uh, we're looking at increasing um, economic activity of about 5.6% this year and then 3.7 next year, and then stabilizing around 1.8-1.6% per year, uh, which is the natural rate of growth uh, for an economy such as Canada, a mature economy, which is fairly good this year and still healthy in 2022, and then fairly reasonable going forward. And that's uh, that's if we get things under control with with COVID, and we don't need to continue with these very expensive programs that were introduced last year, right? Because as you said to us the Indeed. first time you talked to us, we can do this once, just once. Yeah, we cannot spend three hundred billion dollars in in new support measures several times without having significant long term impacts on the debt. As a matter of fact, just 
the recent spending announcements and the investments that have been made um, recently and since the fall economic statement. So between the fall economic statement, November 30th, and the budget, the forecast for debt servicing costs have gone up by $20 billion over five years, almost $20 billion. So just the fact that interest rates have increased a little bit over between these two time snaps or time uh, dates and points in time, sorry, um, and the additional money that's been spent, debt servicing costs will go by, go up by $20 billion over five years. So it's not a lot when we're talking about $350 billion deficits, but still deficits or interest rates have not gone up significantly between the end of November and now, but um, the cost of servicing the federal debt have gone up significantly. Yeah, I'm about so, to sp- I'm about to speak with the economist of the Montreal Economic Institute about this, and they write when it comes to uh, uh, servicing the debt, interest on the debt, which costs, as you said, twenty two billion a year. They write that six percent of the federal budget that's currently allocated just to cover payments on the debt, and this will climb to nine percent at twenty five twenty six, or over thirty nine billion a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's going to be close to one thousand dollars per person. Uh, every person in the country will probably, if we were to share that equally per capita, that represents about $1,000 per person just in interest to service the federal debt. Wow. When they talk about, they being the uh, the government, and the, I, I'm not going to have you speculate on whether there'll be an election or not this year, but it's going to be something that's going to be raised in an election campaign. So if I can just take this issue of uh, stimulating the economy, stimulus spending, and the numbers that were that were talked about by the finance minister and the prime minister were seventy to one hundred billion dollars over three years, without any specifics being given. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the government, when it tabled its fall statement in November, said that it wanted to stimulate the economy to return labor market indicators such as unemployment rate, num- total number of jobs, back to pre-pandemic levels. So at the time, I said, well, if that's your objective, you may not need, you will, we probably will not need 70 to $100 billion, and certainly not over three years. Maybe a couple of months, that will be sufficient, and far lower amount than $70 billion. And when the government tabled its budget, it admitted itself in a couple of charts that the labor market indicators, some of them at least, would be back to their pre-pandemic level by the end of this year without any stimulus. But yet they proceeded to announce over $100 billion in new measures presented as in part stimulus, but also in part as structural changes to the economy. And that's fine if the government wants to invest or spend to make structural changes for a greener economy, for example, or to support certain sectors, that's totally within within its right and it's the policy prerogative of the government. But from an economic perspective, even though some sectors will not have fully recovered by the end of this year, far from it, overall, as an economy in its entirety, from a macro perspective, it will probably have recovered by and large from the pandemic, the labor market at least, by the end of this year or early in 2022, which makes these investments, if the goal is just to stimulate the economy, not fully necessary. 
Now, uh, during one of our interviews, you said that uh, you like to be able to sleep well. And what allows you to sleep well is when you know how governments, in fact, are spending public money. Are you sleeping well these days? (laughs) (laughs) With or without help. Depends. (laughs) With or without help. (laughs) Yeah, I am sleeping relatively well because uh, I've learned to let go of some concerns. I leave them, I leave them at work and try to pick them up the next morning. Otherwise, it would be difficult at times. So I want you to listen to, as we wrap up the interview, I just want you to listen to, if you would, just humor me for a moment. I want to play a little piece from a previous interview with you. I was going to say we're already up to two beers, you and me. Yeah, it's starting to uh, to get very close to abuse. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that, don't you? Uh, uh, yes, I do. You, and you have a good memory, too. No, we record everything. I've always said, don't say to me today what you don't want me to play back for you tomorrow. <laughs> remember, Mr. Giroux, you're buying. I'll keep that in mind. You're buying. I want to speak with Dr. Lomborg about greenhouse gas emissions, and we've done that many times over the years, including the day after the 2015 Paris Accord, where Dr. Lomborg was very direct about what that would not accomplish, uh, vis-a-vis what what was claimed. And uh, so now the global news, news story, of course, was Trudeau increases Canada's 2030 emissions target to 40 to 45 percent of 2005 GHG levels. Uh, Dr. Lomborg has a column that's uh, running internationally. This Earth Day, let's replace alarmism with smarter policy. And Dr. Lomborg joins us from Copenhagen. Dr. Lomborg, thank you very much for the time. And let me just out of the gate ask you what your view is of Mr. Biden. He's the one who who, uh, convened this virtual meeting that Trudeau was part of. Uh, So Biden and Trudeau's commitment to reach 40 to 45 percent of 2005 emissions by 2030. What will that accomplish and at what cost? Now, maybe this is the first part of the question I should have asked. Is it doable? <laughs> Roy, it's great to be back. So, look, uh, it's going to be hard. Uh, I have not looked at the Canada uh, target specifically, but certainly uh, Biden is promising something that is at the very edge of what is plausible to be able to happen in, in just nine years. And remember, if Biden actually succeeds and of course he's not going to be president in 2030 uh, at least one maybe two presidents will be ahead of him if he manages to nonetheless get those presidents to also do what he's promised and then get all the presidents that follow for the next 70 years up to 2100 to keep that commitment he will have managed to cut global temperatures by 0.04 degrees centigrade so, no, it's a lot of uh, pain for very little gain. And, of course, if you r- this is run by, uh, for the U.N. Uh, uh, standard climate model. And if you run uh, uh, Trudeau's promise to go from 36 percent to 40 to 45 percent, uh, he has actually managed to, and again, if he actually achieves what he promises, he will have cut global temperatures by a phenomenal 0.0 zero, two degrees, or two one-thousandths of a degree uh, by the end of the century. So uh, in your in your column, and you and I have talked about this before, and you have great books, including the one that uh, people immediately think of you about, and that's, well, I do anyway, that's Cool It, 
Uh, the world's poor battle with much greater challenges, you write, than, than climate change, starvation, poverty, dying from easily curable diseases, lack of education. So what would, in your view, spending just a thousandth of the cost of the Paris Agreement accomplish? Well, we know it could accomplish an enormous amount of good. Remember, people often justify their concern about global warming, that they really care about the world's poor in 100 years. But I'm surprised that we don't care about the world's poor now. Remember, in 100 years, they're going to be much richer. They're going to be much better off. They'll likely be at levels that are somewhat equivalent to what Canada is today. So why aren't we worried about today's poor? And of course, we can help them much more effectively than trying to cut carbon emissions in Canada by simply uh, helping them with malaria, with tuberculosis, with bad nutrition, with better education. There are a lot of simple things that we can do that would have huge benefits. And of course, the two biggest ones is family planning and free trade. Remember, free trade is what, uh, for, for China, uh, lifted uh, more than 600 million people out of poverty. Dr. Lomborg, you've never said that, uh, that climate change isn't happening. You've never said that warming isn't happening because of human activity. You've, you agree with that. But here we are. We're, we're looking at wildfires, hurricanes, typhoons, earthquakes even, are being attributed to global warming. And in your column, uh, this, is, this Earth Day, let's replace alarmism with smarter policy, you go back to, and I'd for, no, I hadn't forgotten about it, but I, you reminded me about it. In 1982, the United Nations made a certain prediction about what would happen in 2000. Remind us about that, please. Well, they basically told us... Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, very fine. Good. Yes, so they basically told us if we didn't fix global warming, along with desertification and acid rain and a few other things that we worried very much about back in 1982 the world would experience catastrophe equivalent to an all-out nuclear exchange by the year 2000. And of course, we didn't have that. It's, we haven't seen the world be disintegrated. And it's a good example of how we're constantly being scared witless by pronounce, uh, pronouncements that are just not true. Yes, global warming is a problem. No, it's not the end of the world. Yes, it is something we should fix, but we should not scare our kids witless and make them believe that they don't have a future, because that's not what the U.N. climate panel is telling us. So if we bottom line it then, and you wrote the Paris Agreement is phenomenally expensive, costing U.S. one to two trillion every year by 2030. If, uh, if, if we set aside the what Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Biden had to say, what makes sense between now and 2030? So fundamentally, the problem is getting people to switch from fossil fuels, which is what they're using now, which is abundant, which is reliable and cheap, to other forms of green energy, which are typically less reliable and more expensive, is hard to do. You can get rich, well-meaning Canadians to do a little bit, but you won't get most of the poor world to do this. Instead of trying to get everyone to promise to do stuff they don't really want to do for the next 100 years, you should focus on innovation. If we could innovate the price of green energy down below fossil fuels, everyone would switch. The Chinese, the Indians, the Africans, everyone else. Okay. And of course, also Canadians. That is the key, innovation. That's really the only way to fix this.
Colonel Michel Drapeau, whose uh, most recent book is Canada's Military Justice System, in a meltdown, Will Government Act, joins us on the program. Uh, Colonel Drapeau deals with federal law and military law. It's mdlo.ca. Uh, I, uh, Colonel Drapeau, you and I have talked for years about issues that go on with it within the military. This is so disturbing, so deeply disturbing, and more and more incremental information is, is found out after the Liberals shut down the Parliamentary Committee investigating. Where do we stand? How, how, how deplorable is this? It, it's more than bad. It's, uh, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, we've been through a few crises in the past, including Somalia, but now there is, in fact, a total breakdown in, in the trust and confidence that the rank and file has in their uh, senior leadership. First, this is bad. What is, in fact, worse is the Canadian public has also lost confidence in the armed forces whose very purpose in life, in fact, is to, is to be there to protect our values, to defend our liberties, and to be there as, as the force of last resort. And, of course, we give the military lots of money to buy lots of weapons and, and all sorts of authority to deploy abroad and to carry their own justice system with them and so on. So we rely upon the integrity and the law-abiding values of every member of the armed forces, starting with the top brass. And now we have a breakdown. And we have a breakdown where the government has not been able to act. I mean, it's beyond comprehension as to why the Prime Minister has left this current Defence Minister in place through, and he's been there for five years, uh, unable, incapable to make a decision to come to the bottom of it and to inform Canadians as to what happened. Now, he has supposedly asked the military police to investigate a number of things, but we have yet to receive any information whatsoever, except we know that three most senior military leaders have been suspended from duty and the rest of it uh, you know how are we going to get out of that nothing has been said i propose various solution there are others who propose solution but at the moment nothing so it's, it's disturbing as we speak i could not in all honesty uh, you know recommend to any uh, any woman to join the forces i could not yeah. and despite the fact that i, I believe they can make excellent soldiers. They can serve in a very honorable profession and so on. But it's beyond me to recommend to any one of them to join the forces. That's, this is all bad it is. And I'm just reading um, the first sentence, two sentences, from a global news story from earlier in the week. Major Kelly Brennan says former chief of defense staff, General Jonathan Vance, told her he was, quote, untouchable, end quote, and that he, quote, owned, end quote, the military police. She also said he fathered two children with me. Well, Brennan is right, uh, and, and uh, she's not the only one that says that the military police is, in fact, a company police. It reports to the vice chief of the defense staff, who's one door away from the chief of the defense staff. All its members are military. They, they don't have the independence required uh, to to investigate crimes such as sexual assault, and, and they have not. And there's been a number of studies by academia, uh, journalists have looked into it and so on. The conviction rate on sexual assault in the military is below what you find in civil society. I've argued for at least 10 years, written a number of books on it, 
that prosecution, the jurisdiction of sexual assault, should be returned to civilian authorities, and the military police should have nothing to do with it. So uh, what she says is right. Uh, The CDS, the past and present, own the police. It's their company police. They're sitting at the top, and they're not going to do anything that runs contrary to what the chief of the defense staff wants or desires. Colonel Drapo, we have a minute left here. Is it your sense that they are actually trying to find the truth here and come to grips with this terrible situation, this horrible reality, or are they trying to find a way out of it? I think that they're letting the clock run, and they know that through times uh, there will be a fatigue setting in, the public will get tired of it, and the public, as new allegation comes out, they probably imagine that while they've heard this before, just to repeat, although it's new, fresh evidence, they just hope, in fact, a crisis come along of whatever type it is that will overcome this one and will capture the media and capture attention and the, and, 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 uh, the public will turn its head and attention to something else. COVID is a good case in point. So, I mean, there's no reason why the, ch- the chief of defense staff whose allegations were made against him in mid-January, here we are, where, you know, next week could be in May. Nothing has been said. Brendan has testified before committees, right. but she's also made some pretty, you know, horrendic, horrific uh, uh, allegations in, in the public media. Nothing has been done. Nothing has been said. Nothing has been okay. brought about to correct it. Michelle Rempel-Garner, who is the Shadow Minister for Health of the Conservative Party of Canada, also a member of Parliament for Calgary. Nose Hill, Michelle, thank you very much for taking the time. Let me start with this. And I know this is a key issue for you. Yesterday, uh, there was a decision made to ban flights from Pakistan and India for 30 days because of the COVID spread there. But a lot of talk about uh, closing our borders to the arrival of variants. Describe what's been going on, and when you raised this in Parliament, what did you get back from the Prime Minister or the Minister of Health? Well, it's like, you know, the saying, trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube, right? Um, This is something that should have been done. There should have been border control measures in the early days of the pandemic in January 2020. Um, You know, you and I have talked about the response from the government many times since then, how it was just inexcusable uh, you know, the health minister at that point in time saying border control measures don't work. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, this is, you know, it, it's, a, it's too late, um, but it is needed. I think that going forward, though, um, I have a lot of questions about how we got to this point and, and why the government isn't doing more to address the variant of con- address variants of concern. Um, I, I want to start by saying, like, we wouldn't be in this point at this point if we had vaccinated more people in January and February. We didn't have the vaccine to do it. But like this, the double variant that was first found in India was identified in October. Like, like, think about that for a second. Like, why aren't we screening? Why are why aren't we rapid testing at ports of entry? Why why aren't we, um, you know, taking information on variants of concerns that are identified and putting that into travel advice or travel measures like, you know, flight bans or stricter quarantine measures for people who are coming back from those places. There's so many things that the government could have done that they could be doing today um, that they haven't done. And that's exacerbated by the fact that we don't have adequate vaccines right now to, to, 
to be where we need to be to stop the spread of variants. Well, let's talk about that uh, vaccine availability or lack of. Uh, Don Gerson, Dr. Donald Gerson, who's an international expert on vaccines and owns and operates NuVax in Montreal, which is a lob wedge away from the National Research Council, which got $170 million from Mr. Trudeau to produce vaccines. And they won't even be able to get started until probably early 2022. Uh, Don Gerson was on this program last weekend telling us that international governments are actually getting ready to hire NuVax to, to produce vaccines for their citizens. Meanwhile, the Trudeau government didn't even respond to uh, Dr. Gerson's offer to produce them for Canadians. And it's not just them. There's a company in you know my province of Alberta that um, had the same exact issue. Um, I think when, at some point in the future, we look back and do an inquiry on the handling of the pandemic, uh, Trudeau's failure to ramp up manufac- domestic manufacturing capacity will be cited as one of the most critical failings in public policy that we've seen in generations in Canada. And, and, you know, obviously we're not producing enough here at home to vaccinate our own people. We we are, you know, subject to the whims of other countries. But there's also ethical obligations here. Like, I mean, I look at India, who's re- they're really struggling to vaccinate their own people where they've got a huge spike. Um, and, and, you know, we're reliant on them. The same goes for the COVAX. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, facility. That's a, a program designed to provide vaccines to developing countries, and we're we're taking vaccines know, from there. Yeah, it's that. It's outrageous. Well, look, uh, is the is the pandemic being politically weaponized? And I'm pointing. The, I'm asking everybody, each party, are political parties taking advantage of the pandemic to turn it into um, the political weapon? Let me be very clear. I want to get people vaccines and I want people to see a path out of lockdown that's safe. That should be the only objective of any politician. You know, when I stand in the House of Commons and I hear Justin Trudeau saying, anytime I ask a question, like, when are the vaccines coming? Why didn't we have more vaccines in January and February? You know, why haven't there been more stricter border control measures? What are we doing to identify variants? The response that comes back is, well, we don't want to have partisan questions. Let's actually take out the partisan out of there. We don't want questions on our failures. We cannot move forward unless the government, of all, like all governments, understand that there have been significant failures that have happened here and that we need to discuss them, identify them, and then come up with a plan to move forward. Just saying everything is fine, like nobody believes that. It doesn't matter how you vote, like everything is not fine. No, and we, not. Need to, we need to move forward. Um, I've been working very closely on the health committee with colleagues from the NDP and the Bloc Québécois. I can tell you on our side, there's no partisanship. It's like, we need vaccines, we need a way out. Um, I, I just wish that the federal government would, you know, sort of take the same spirit here. Yeah, yeah. Well, we do know that vitamin D isn't good for you. I, I, I take vitamin D. Well, you know what I mean. When one of your we colleagues... Need vaccines, right. We need therapeutics. I know, I know, but one of your colleagues, one of your colleagues asked the federal minister of health about vitamin D and she said it was fake news. So, so I've been involved in taking fake news now for years. So anyway, it's just, I don't know, Michelle, sometimes I need a little comedic relief and sometimes the health minister provides it, unfortunately. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.